Hi, welcome to the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn, so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. Every week, I discuss aspects of learning with academics, practitioners, and individuals with unique learning journeys to inform and inspire how you design learning into work and life. As lifelong learning is becoming an essential component of any successful business, how is business education changing to support that? The two-year MBA has been the foundation for many business leaders, but this may be changing. Harvard and Columbia's business schools are starting to add certificates to their programs, allowing individuals to take short learning experiences throughout their career. Online learning is also paving the way for a different learning experience. Six years ago, Harvard launched the extremely successful Harvard Business School Online, which offers certificates instead of degrees in a fully online learning environment. These changes may be transforming business education for years ahead. To discuss the future of leadership and business education, I'm joined by the person leading this transformation. Patrick Mullen is the executive director of Harvard Business School Online, where he is responsible for managing growth, expansion in global markets, and long-term success. Harvard Business School Online delivers rigorous and immersive courses that enable professionals at every level to advance their careers, positively impact their organization, and appreciate business in powerful new ways. Patrick is also the author of the book, The Father, Son, and the Holy Shuttle, Growing Up an Astronaut's Kid in the Glorious 80s which is a humorous memoir of his life growing up as the son of an astronaut. Thank you very much, Patrick, for joining me today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me here. Before we get into discussing the future of business education, let's start a little bit in the past. I read your book, which was a really great read, a memoir about you growing up with your astronaut father and his career, how it really influenced you and also impacted your family as a whole your father being Mike Mullen, who flew on several NASA missions, Discovery being the one that that you discuss in the book. And he had a stellar career. What I really enjoyed is that your book had several layers. On the surface, it was a wonderful read about almost a nostalgic look at the 80s. But then also it had a really great insights into what it takes to be an astronaut and what that meant for your family and your father. You say that your career was really defined by your father and very much influenced. In several places in the book, you talk about how he really taught you to be curious, courageous, and to be a leader. So can you tell me a little bit about how his influence impacted your future career as a business leader? Sure. I, I mean, it, it's funny because a lot of, as you know from the book, a lot of the examples are not really weighty in a lot of ways. But I think we underestimate to children how certain vignettes will stand out when you're growing up. So, you know, one of the stories I tell in there, uh, you may recall, is about how we had this VW station wagon and throttle cable broke on it. So the car, when you press on the accelerator, nothing would happen, even though the engine would run. And so my father showed me how to lean over the engine, which was in the back of the car, and and work the throttle arm for him while he just barked orders from the driver's seat so we could get to a shop to get it fixed. And I I know that it really kind of taught me, and I do think, by the way, this is also more evidence of the age and certainly the age he grew up in where people just took matters into their own hands because there wasn't the internet and you couldn't get on a cell phone and call a service company, right? So you really had to kind of 
find a way to solve a problem by thinking on your feet and not getting flustered by it. And um, I know that's a small example, but to whatever I was at the time, seven, eight-year-old kid, it really uh, stuck out to me. And my grandfather, his father was very similar in that regard. So there was these lessons about, you know, taking action. There were lessons about just staying kind of cool under pressure because, you know, obviously Mm -hmm. the whole right stuff mentality is really all about that. And it was true that the astronauts really did exhibit that. Although a little aside is the the astronauts selected in his group was the first group of astronauts to have non-military astronauts. So his group included Sally Ride and all the other women who were in the astronaut corps at the very beginning, the shuttle corps, but it also had a lot of postdocs, people you'd be familiar with. And there was initially a lot of fighter pilots and, and test aviators were skeptical of being lumped together with these folks because most of these people who had been in aviation in the military, given their era, had flown in Vietnam they had been uh, testing aircraft where their lives were put on the line. And when you're in a situation where your life's being put on the line, you, you want people around you who also you can rely on to stay cool under pressure. And, um, you know, he has his own book where he talks about how his, his impressions were all wrong. Those people acquitted themselves wonderfully. But that said, I kind of absorbed through my father this sense of, hey, when things get tough, don't get all flustered and and, um, you know, throw your hands up, you know, stay calm. Uh, if you're a leader, make sure the people around you kind of know what you're thinking, but, you know, try and make them see a way out versus getting bogged down in, in the what was mm-hmm. me kind of mentality. And, you know, of course, in my job, it, you know, leading an online education organization, it's not like I have these life or death decisions, but, you know, I think most people have been in a professional setting know there are things that come up, which do introduce a lot of stress. And those exactly. lessons are still, you know, relevant there. And then the other thing is he, he's, he's just a, and my mother too, my, but my father was a very kind of empathetic guy. And he exhibited something that I didn't ever hear vocalized until actually when I was in the military myself. And I had a boss who said this, that when you're a leader, there's no reason to wear your rank on your sleeve because literally in the military, it's on your sleeve. I'll never forget that. He said, people know your rank. So you don't have to remind them by grandstanding or yelling at somebody, you know, certainly if, or if you're going to do it, at least do it behind closed doors, right? You you, you have praise in public, uh, criticize in private kind of mentality. And so I think that lesson came through to me too, uh, based on, you know, how my things my father explicitly said to me and how he paved. That's really good. As you said, a lot of small moments that very clearly do influence in in you wanting to make a mark on the world and wanting to do good. And I really liked when he said that the world is always in need of more good leaders, people who want to do good and, uh, and lead. So that was really, really nice. Fantastic. It's, it's a really nice read. In your career, you went on after university to work in the Air Force, and then you went on to Harvard Business School to obtain your MBA. You went into business following that and had a great career in business. And then you came back to lead to the Harvard Business School online. So you've seen business from a lot of different perspectives. So how have you seen business education changing? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It's particularly maybe, you know, in a weird way, more relevant for me than most people. And I don't mean me specifically, people in kind of my age group who were getting MBAs at the time I did, because I graduated from HBS in 1999, literally at the peak of the dot-com bubble. Mm -hmm. And so if you say that everything that came after that was kind of the the technical world we now know today, I don't think it's a stretch. In fact, Amazon had kind of just gotten its start. Facebook was not even yet started. And, And none of those things could have happened without the advent of easily accessible internet, which is what was happening during that time. 
And so I was kind of the last cadre of folks who went through, I think, a more traditional MBA. In fact, there was a required course in the first year at Harvard, it still exists, by the way, called TOM, which stood for Technology and Operations Management. And you know, when I was there, most of that was basically about operations management. It wasn't really about mm-hmm. technology. I think now the course is much more weighted toward technology and what it means for the business world than it was then. But I, I certainly think that the beyond the things you learn, and you and I talk about this a lot, certainly the way you deliver education because of technology is changing, but it hasn't changed mm-hmm. nearly fast enough. You know, I think you saw me give a talk once in Canada where I point out that from the, from the time the Wright brothers flew, getting back to our aviation and space thing here, uh, to the time that Neil Armstrong first walked on the moon, a lot of people don't realize that was 66 years, which is nothing. Mm-hmm. That's a blink of an eye. And when you mm-hmm. think of how much change had to happen from those first tenuous steps at Kitty Hawk to uh, landing on the moon, and then you juxtapose that to what's happened in education, education really hadn't, and still I would argue, hasn't changed all that much for thousands of yes. years. Yeah. And so I think it's ripe for more innovation, but it's starting to happen. And that's the, the big difference is how we're delivering it using technology. It, it is that combination of catching up with the technology and with the right methods that are more effective, but also holding on to the past in the terms of the strategies and the methods that have always been very effective. Yep. And it's, I think that's what's really difficult is actually sifting through, you know, as you talk in your book about growing up, there's so many leadership skills that you learned from your father. And now in an internet age where, as you said, the MBA has changed, business education has changed, but it's sifting through what is timeless and what is good education. And then how do we need to update that? Technology is absolutely a massive, massive part of it. And by the way, I should mention too, the other thing, I agree on the sifting through what works and what doesn't. And the other thing is, is to make sure you don't have blinders on about what can now be done that could never be done before. I do think that we tend it's true of any organization with a long history and, a, and a, a large infrastructure to support the old way of doing things, but it's often very hard to divorce yourself from what you've done in the past and really mm-hmm. think differently about how you can do them in the future. Very hard. And I think it's particularly hard for universities. You've worked in them too. I, I, you know, they're, they're, they have a lot of great qualities, but being able to kind of get outside their own bubble at times and think about how to do things differently is a challenge. Have you seen examples that have kind of really struck you in that where someone can't see maybe what's in front of them? Yeah, I think I think the best example, frankly, is, and it really came to the fore with COVID, is this idea of how you deliver a meaningful learning experience when you're not in the same room with somebody. Uh, I always say, mm-hmm. you know, lecture is a pretty crummy pedagogy, no matter mm-hmm. whether you're in the room with somebody or not. And I would argue it gets, to the extent that it's bad when it's face-to-face, it's about 10x as bad when you're doing it on a Zoom call, right? So, Absolutely. so I think there's an example of where, you know, you say, but we've done lecture and nobody complained and it seemed to work. Well, that's not a reason to keep doing lecture. And I'm not arguing, by the way, there, there is a place for lecture. That's, mm-hmm. I'm not arguing there isn't. But I, I think if schools now think they can just, you know, rebuild online by filming a classroom, that, that would be a mistake. You know, a great example is in the early days of film, the idea that the motion picture camera was invented. Nobody considered making a movie production that utilized all of the capabilities that a mobile camera you can turn on and off and edit would give you. And instead they just filmed stage plays, you know? So I think we're kind of in that in that world, a friend of mine says this all the time, we're kind of in that world where we're filming stage plays. We're not quite to the special effects and editing and all the things you see today in film. That's a really good example. It's a really good example to think about 
what you're afforded with the new technology, with the new opportunities and try to leverage that is, is huge. And actually Harvard Business School Online does that amazingly well. So can you give an overview of what it is like to go to Harvard Business School Online? What does the program look like and what can someone expect that experience to be? Sure. Um, so first I should note that we don't do any online degrees. All of our online content is for a certificate. Mm-hmm. We have one yeah. course where you do get a grade, but you still are getting a credential that is a, a non-degree credential. But one thing that we were very fortunate at HBS is for many years, and many people who follow business education know this, the kind of differentiator for Harvard Business School was that we taught virtually everything to the case method of learning, which is you know, kind of an inductive Socratic method of learning. And so when we were building HBS online, there was a desire, and I'll talk about this in a minute, and I think it was a, a very important decision, and it was before my time, by the way, I had nothing to do with this, but was that we, we stay true to that pedagogy because if we don't, then we're just going to be like everything else that's offered. And not only that, we think it's a really effective way to learn. And certainly mm-hmm. as somebody who was a student and never experienced a case method before I was in the MBA program, I would agree. It's a great, great way to learn uh, yeah. business topics. So we really stuck to that pedagogy and made sure that our courses are developed where the case method is employed. And what that means is that almost every course has a pretty significant uh, number of protagonists in it. So real business people around the world who are facing an issue or are deciding how they're going to tackle a problem. And we ask the students to put themselves in the shoes of the protagonist and learn how to think critically and make decisions by having done that. Mm-hmm. I should point out too, the case method actually was way ahead of its time in a way, because when you think of how people use technology today, it often is for the purpose of consuming stories, right? It's, whether it's, yes. whether it's news stories, whether it's Netflix, whether it's Hulu, whatever. And so in a way it actually, I think is, and we've been very successful with, you know, the satisfaction completion rates, rates on our courses are, are very high. We are very lucky that it is like watching a movie in a way, but it's requiring you to think through the movie and what you would do. As I said and alluded to, uh, people seem to love it as evidenced by our completion rates and our satisfaction scores on our, on our programs. Right. And also very interactive because in the case method, you have a lot of dialogue and discussion, don't you? Yeah. It's not a lecture. Um, I should point out too that our courses are asynchronous, meaning there's no live faculty interaction. So it does beg the question as to how do you do exactly what you just alluded to? How do you make a course or a, or a pedagogy that relies on back and forth between faculty and student? How do you make that online when the faculty aren't live online? And the way we do it is several ways. First of all, it means you have to put a lot of thought into the course because you have to anticipate what people are going to think and then ask them questions through the platform that make it seem like you're reading their minds. Um, So as an example, we have in our economics course, a case about the introduction of the Kindle and selling New York Times bestsellers at $9.99. And we interviewed two executives from Penguin Random House, a traditional publisher, about their reaction to this when they learned about it uh, in whatever year it was. And they, they comment about how they, they weren't so worried about the Kindle because they thought it was a niche technophile advice, which turned out to be wrong too. Um, <laughs> but they were worried a lot about the pricing of a bestseller because they were selling bestsellers at the time for $25, right? In a, in a undiscounted in a, in a bookstore. So we show that video and then we pause. And after the students watched it, we asked them a question is, uh, do you think that learn, if you're a traditional publisher, do you think the introduction of the Kindle is good for your business, bad for your business or neutral? And, you know, we know, and it doesn't take a rocket science to to figure this out, but we know that 85% of people are going to say it's bad for their business. And so Mm -hmm. 
We asked them, we, we pull the cohort, you see the results of the cohort and invariably 70 to 80% of the people say, you know, it's bad for your business. And then you pick up with a narrative after that, we say, most of you said that this is bad for the business, right? Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's a little sleight of hand, but it works and it helps people see that we've thought through it. The other thing we do to make it interactive is we really ask the students to participate with each other. By the way, this is another huge lesson is that crowdsourcing works very well for virtually everything. So if somebody doesn't understand a concept or has a question, they can post in a peer help on our platform. And it's and, and this is kind of a unique feature too. The peer help window is only for Q&A related to what's being seen on the page. So it's not like an endless bulletin board where you have to search out or you know type a keyword in. You're actually going to see the questions and answers being asked of other people about the same material. And we find that we don't have to interject at all. I mean, I, I don't think we do it ever anymore. That the students, there's a lot of smart people in the world and they can help each other figure it out. So by doing those things, it feels much more interactive than a typical kind of watch a video sort of course would be. Absolutely. So you sign on to the course and you start and it's already, you have the material there Mm -hmm. and you go through the material, but then you have the option. And you're also, I'm sure, encouraged to interact with your peers who are also taking the course at the same time. Correct. And the other thing we do is we don't allow people to take the course anonymously. So when you register, you have to upload a profile picture. You have to give who you are because it's very hard to have people trust each other in a forum, especially when you're not in the same room and you haven't gotten to know each other, if there isn't a sense that you know who you're dealing with, and we found that mm-hmm. there's a lot as well. Definitely. So what do you think are the unique benefits and opportunities that HBS Online offers to students? A few things. I mean, and, and many of these are not unique to us, but certainly being able to take the material to some extent at your own pace and to some extent in your own time. What I mean by that is the case method does rely somewhat on people going through materials simultaneously. So while we don't require you to do a certain amount of content on a specific date, we do require you to do it within a certain time frame. So the way it works Mm -hmm. is each module typically is a week long. The minute that module is available to take, you can finish it all on the first day that that module is open, but we won't allow you to start the next module until the following week when everybody else is caught up to you so that everybody's kind of Mm -hmm. going through the material in lockstep with each other. Right. But still within that week, if you want to do it at two in the morning on a Monday versus uh, three in the afternoon on a Wednesday, that's completely up to you. And you do have that flexibility. To the extent that we focus on business education, it's really a great offering for people who probably either don't want to get an MBA because they want they can't because they don't have the money, they don't have the time, they can't travel, they got a family, whatever. Or people who frankly want to test the waters to see if they want to get an MBA. It's a great way to see if you you like you know business content. We found that when we survey our participants, they tend to be very effusive about how the skills and being able to put it on their CV and talk about it with potential employers or their bosses, it really does help them separate themselves from others and show that they, Mm. not only that they've learned a valuable skill, but I often tell people that just as valuable as learning a skill is signaling to an employer that you took the time to buy yourself, go and often at your own expense to go and learn something that you think might help you in your job that I think people right. underestimate how much a boss appreciates that. So mm. I think those are some pretty unique features, you know, relative to other offerings. And you're also really connecting to a community of learners who are also in business, also thinking about these issues, Correct, yeah. uh, which in itself must bring out a lot of learning in that context. Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, and, you know, to your point, if you juxtapose that to like a required curriculum in an undergraduate program where you might be in a class, you know, often, more often than not, not everybody wants to be there because they're interested in the topic. They're there because they have to right. do it. When you have people who have kind of signed up because they're interested and they're taking the effort to show up every day, you could be 
you know, pretty certain that there's going to be a pretty vibrant community there. And we found it not only in the course itself, but we have some closed Facebook groups. And we also have a virtual club infrastructure around the world where we have many, many active participants. So people seem to, you know, hang on to those relationships even after they have their online experience. There's so many reasons why Harvard Business School Online is leading. And one of them is the fact that it's online and it's offering that opportunity for people to take at distance, to take the business education at different points in time because it's modular. But with lifelong learning becoming very, very important and schooling and work becoming more interwoven and a lifelong experience, you're already at that point where people don't have to leave their job for two years. Mm -hmm. Actually, when they need a certain type of learning, they can actually reach out and get the type of learning that they actually need at the time. So this is all very much where the world is going, both about the online and about the fact that you can increase your skills throughout your work life. So this type of online and modular, continuous, lifelong experience that HBS Online is offering, how is this impacting the future of business education? Yeah, you know, I don't know for sure. And I always say if I could predict the future, I wouldn't do this. I'd be a billionaire because I'd be, you know, straight trading futures in the stock market. But that said, you know, certainly have some opinions. So first of all, with, and I'll just focus on business education because it's what I know. Right. I do think there will remain demand for a two-year in-residence MBA. Mm-hmm. For example, one thing that's very good for and certainly was good for me is for people who are looking to pivot from one career to the next. If you take this break and then you go away to do an MBA, and and for whatever reason, this tends to be more true for very competitive MBA programs. So I'm not sure it's true for all. But if you go to a, a top five to 10 MBA program, it is a nice way to say, hey, that was me before. But now coming out, I've learned all these new skills. I've made this incredible network. I'm a very smart person. Hire me to do this other job. So it's a great way to make a transition. But that doesn't describe most people. In fact, it's probably a small minority of people. Uh, Most people are people who are in a career they either like and they want to get skills that are going to help them do it better, or they don't like and they want skills so they can be more marketable and go look for something else. I mean, if you're going to be very mercenary about it, ultimately in business education, that's a lot of what's driving demand. I do think lifelong learning is a thing. I will be honest. I think that universities, and we've seen this at Harvard, it is not an easy, as easy a sale as you would think to go back to people, for example, who have gone through an MBA program or executive education program and convince them that they need to come back to you regularly for education. It's not clear to me if that's because it's just that universities haven't been good at marketing, establishing such programs and marketing them, which I certainly think that's a problem. Or if it's that we underestimate just how busy people are and also, frankly, Mm -hmm. how much lifelong learning comes from literally just on-the-job training. I mean, you know, most of what we learn in business isn't from a school, to be frank. It's because you had a job, you know, as an individual contributor, and then you were a project manager and learned about manage a team and Gantt charts and budgets and things like that. And then you got elevated to a business unit and you learned about how to manage a P&L. You know, those things, right. um, certainly supplemental education can help, but it's not most of what you learn. I think it's kind of a, it's a lever, right? It makes what you've learned on the job even more impactful because now you you know, the latest research on a particular topic, for example. Yeah. Um, but I do think that the idea of lifelong learning is one that's here to stay. And I think a lot of companies now, I know a lot of companies now are trying to find ways to incorporate it, even with university partnerships and some mm-hmm. private companies, 
ways to get their employee base more educated more regularly so that they can be more competitive. Exactly. And that is a shift that I think is happening now, isn't it? Where companies are really starting to look increasingly more at that kind of partnerships. So what do you think is the change factor? The world is changing very quickly. Business is changing very quickly. So there are new skills that need to be taught in the job in addition to all the in the work kind of experience. So what do you think is triggering now that workplaces are actually saying, you know what, would like you to take that month or two months and take this course yeah. at the university? Um, I think a few things. One is simply this idea of or the future of work, right? That we have demand for skills that just don't exist in the numbers we need to grow economies and grow companies. So that's item number one. Number two is private sector and capitalism are great in this regard, is that if you think your company is going to be more competitive by allowing people to do that, then it's a pretty easy call, right? Because if if you're doing better at training people in data analytics than your competitor next door, that should position you to have better return for your shareholders, make more money. Um, So I think, you know, for a lot of companies, that's becoming an easier reason to sell. And to the point where now it does seem like I see more companies talking about education as a benefit, no less than, you know, other benefit here in the U.S., for example, obviously medical care is still tied to employment in a lot of cases. So I'm seeing it start to get kind of equal stature with with things like that. And the last point I'll make is that, you know, the old phrase about demographics or or destiny is that in the U.S. for sure, but I think this is uh, in the developing world is, is a problem, generally speaking is, you know, U.S. had the baby boomers go and create, you know, companies and staff them and grow them. The generations coming behind them are much smaller. So the number of people who can lead those organizations and work in those organizations is just too small. And my suspicion is, and I don't have any research to support this, but it would, you know, being a critical thinker about it, is that that's a big part of why technology matters, right? You need to find ways to get more productivity out of fewer people. And if you have if it's fewer people who have the skills you need, you're really going to have to find a way to do it. So I think all those things are kind of conspiring to make business education in particular, or education in general, more a part of your, to your point, your, your career life, if you will, mm-hmm. within an organization. So the business value is really outweighing the fact that you're taking time away, yeah. which is always difficult because everyone is very, very busy, but it's outweighed by the fact that you really do need these new skills and new ways of thinking or working. Yeah. And, and I think for a lot of companies, the, the calculus simply is, well, if we don't do this for a certain set of our employees, we're going to lose a lot more time because they're either going to leave us and go get a degree full time, which hurts us. And they might leave us and never come back. So I think, and you lose a lot of institutional knowledge and onboarding and all that stuff is expensive. So I think, uh, yes, there's many factors contributing to that. And is there something that you would suggest to someone thinking about learning business, about going to business school, either for an MBA or for a continuing education modules, in some way upgrading their business skills? What would you suggest that they think about? You mean with respect to deciding which one's the right path? Exactly. Yeah. Deciding what's the best. Yeah. I think there's a few things. I've written a few articles about this. Forgive me for kind of dancing around a bit. No particular order here. So first of all, as I said, if you want to pivot to a new career, I do think there's value in leaving what you're at, making a clean break, and then going to a program to learn the skills and then interviewing for a new job on the way out of business school. Mm -hmm. When it comes to going the route of like an HBS online, the flip side of that coin is relevant. If you're planning on just staying in your current job, or you just want to build some skills that will allow you to be more marketable and protect yourself against, you know, a COVID layoff or something, then I I think that's a good reason to consider. And you want to keep the cost down and the time down. That's a good reason to consider more of these certificate type programs that will get you a specific skill. But I think generally that beyond those 
two things. It comes down to one of economics, frankly, is that if you can afford to go to a top tier program and not just MBA, any top tier program and make the math work so that you're not going to, you know, drown yourself in debt for the rest of your life, then it's really often hard for me to make an argument that that's not a good thing to do. Of course, it, it presupposes all the things you would assume, right? That you you like the topic area, that you're interested, that you want to do it. I mean, if somebody's if, if you have a relative, you know, who expects it of you and forces you to do it, even if you can pay for it, that could be pretty miserable. So I think just doing that economic calculus, and and I and by the way, I think far too many people don't do this, and we've uh, not been good, certainly in the United States, about explaining to people that it is not true, and this is kind of you know, blasphemy in, in some quarters, but it is not true that all education is worth it. It's not. Um, and, you know, that that's not a comment on brand. I'm not talking about, you know, if you go, don't go to Harvard, it's not worth spending, not at all. It's just a comment on, it's a comment on cost versus reward. And I think we've convinced way too many people to take on way too much debt to get a degree that doesn't matter. I'll give you a perfect example in the United States. There's two, there's two areas where it stand out to me is social work and education, uh, you know, primary school education or K through 12 education. Because in those two areas, it's very common that you need a master's degree to, you know, retain your job uh, ultimately right. or, to, or to move up in your job. Yet, um, and you know more about the education space than I do in the K through 12 space, but generally speaking, I'm not aware that where you get that degree matters. So if it, it, particularly for a state or government uh, job, right, they want you to check the box. And I'm not arguing you just, you know, go to the worst program possible at the cheapest price. I'm just saying that it does mean that it may not be prudent to spend a ton of money at some brand to check that box, especially in a career where it's going to be very hard to make a lot of money and pay off any debt you might incur to do it. So I think, you know, doing the social work is another great example of it. I think doing that work work uh, to understand what you're getting yourself into is really important. And we haven't done good as an education financing complex, whatever we call ourselves, at helping people understand that. No, I completely agree with you because you really do need to know either when you're going into your bachelor's or if you're going to graduate school, you really need to know why you are doing that. And the, the idea of, well, I should go to university and then I will have a better job. That's not enough of a why. It yep. needs to be, why do I want to do this degree at this place? And how is that, as you said, all of the different factors balancing out? Right. Yeah. By the way, part of the reason I first learned about, you know, K-12 instructors in the United States and in social work is that I would read many articles lamenting the state of student debt in the United States. And invariably, the examples are often in those two areas where people have run mm. up like $150,000 in student debt to teach third mm. grade. Uh, and, and again, they're they're anecdotal and they're uh, they're only going to highlight the experience sure. to be sure. But still, you know, it, it breaks my heart. You know, people filing bankruptcy because they can't actually file to get out of <laughs> out of a student debt in the United States bankruptcy, but it can force the rest of your life into bankruptcy. So that's really breaks my heart when I see that. And I just highlight that I don't think a lot of people are thinking that through. No, absolutely. It's really, really important to think through exactly the objective at the end and yeah. why you're doing it. And online offers that ability more and more now. And I think especially through this quick shift to online learning, more and more institutions will learn to do it well and learn to offer really valuable programs because there's certainly challenges as well as opportunities with online learning. And I think especially now this emergency online really taught us that the challenges are real, but there's also a really great glimpse of opportunities that you need to develop and highlight so that it is a good learning experience. 
HBS Online is a fantastic learning experience, but can you share a little bit of advice on what you think others can keep in mind on designing their own online learning or when they're thinking about teaching online or designing a course online? What are some highlights that you think are important? Yeah, there's two big things that stand out to me, and I've alluded to one with respect to HBS Online that we were fortunate and that we didn't have to give it too much thinking, is I don't think, when I talk to other universities who ask me the same question, that a lot of people really give enough attention to pedagogy, like thinking through, you know, do we, do we have a pedagogical center, right? And if the answer is lecture, that's okay, but you need to keep in mind that if you're going to do that, the interactivity needs to be significantly higher if you're doing it in an online environment. Otherwise, the, you won't get the efficacy, you'll get people tuning out, and ultimately you'll get people not signing up for it. So I think right. really thinking through, okay, how are we going to teach? And by the way, I, this is a little more complex if you're outside of a business school like I am, because in a given university, there can be 10 different pedagogies used throughout the university yes. with respect to how education is delivered. But my point is, is that if you ignore that and just say, everybody just film yourself lecturing, that is guaranteed to fail. So it's a lot of work, but the design school uses the critique method, figure out how to do the critique method online. If your business school uses mm. the case method or your law school, figure out how to do that online. The labs, you know, I know that that's a little more difficult to do, but there's certainly, I think asynchronous work or not even asynchronous, but synchronous uh, with faculty work you can do uh, in a distance education way that will prepare you for an upcoming lab, you know, do a little bit of flipped classroom yes. stuff. So thinking through that, and the reason that's important isn't only because it matters significantly with respect to the student engagement and therefore how much they learn, but again, thinking like a business school person here, it does matter for market differentiation. If your course looks just like the course of the school down the street, why does that make somebody sign up to engage with you versus them? And again, this is in, in education, this can be kind of a, it can be considered you know, uncouth to talk about these kind of financial matters. But it does matter because if people don't sign up for your courses, you ain't going to be around very long. So, yes, so, very so thinking through that differentiation piece, I think, is, is very, very important. That is really important. And that experience, especially because technology amplifies everything. Yep. So being at home and learning at home, all the distractions are amplified. The, the good and the bad is amplified. So yep. it may, you really do need to think through carefully what kind, of, what kind of methods you're going to use and how you're going to, and as you said, how you're going to use the tool, yeah. exploring the tools on what the opportunities are. So One note about that too, King, that I want to mention is that you know, while COVID did help us accelerate our adoption of online, one, one fear I have is that so many people did it so fast the experience for a lot of students was really poor. And it might've been mm -hmm. their first experience with a lot of online education. So yeah. it, it may be a case where we kind of did one step forward, two steps back, and we're really gonna need to you know, buckle down as a kind of as a sector, if you will, and figure out how, how to do this better for our students. Right. Absolutely. That is really true because I certainly hear it from a lot of parents and teachers. Yeah. It's a very, very challenging experience for the students and for the teachers. Again, highlighting that there are very, very good strategies and very good pedagogies that work online, but they do take time to learn and they do take mm -hmm. more time to create, possibly. Yeah. Good to hear more about HBS Online and how you go about this experience and what, where you think the future is going. And I think the future is, as you said, interweaving the traditional degrees with more and more of module degrees that are learning as at the point where you need to learn something new and having that support throughout the careers. Thank you. 
But before we end, I wanted to ask you if you have a recommendation for something that inspires you, something that you think is really interesting on this topic to read or watch. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, you had sent me some notes beforehand about asking. I actually didn't pick topics that were directly related to online, but were sort of business related and had some good lessons in them. One of them, as far as a film goes, is a documentary, The Inventor, about Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos, a company that imploded after they were basically, you know, committed fraud about what their, they, they made a blood testing device that turned out to not work. And it was very public and Wall Street Journal showed up there. And in fact, there was a book written by a Wall Street Journal reporter that the movie, the documentary is based on. But I highly recommend it because it's really a great idea of how, you know, people kind of slip into being unethical, even though they didn't intend to maybe. Hmm, and I, I think for a lot of leaders, that's an important lesson to be reminded of every now and then. It's easy to suck yourself into believing that you're not doing anything wrong. In fact, if you step back in the light of day, it's pretty clear that you are. And then as far as books go, and this one maybe is more related to, it can work for any industry, but certainly it's relevant for online education. There's a book called Where Do Good Ideas Come From by a guy named Stephen Johnson. And I just found it very interesting. He talks about all of the kind of critical success factors you need to make sure you're fostering an environment where ideas can take purchase and develop and you know turn into things that you actually execute upon. And so I find I find that just I thought it was a very good book in helping you know see how to think more critically about ideas. That's really important, especially in these times when things are seeming like they're getting at faster and faster yeah, and lightning yeah. speed. Both of those things are important to kind of step back and think about what you're doing and think about the environment that you're creating. No doubt about it. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, it's great book. Thank you so much. And thank you very much for joining me and for being here. I really enjoyed, as always, the conversations with you. So thank you. Likewise, Patrick. a lot of fun. Thanks, Kinga.